All right, buddy, I want to welcome you back to part two of our two-part discussion uh, dealing with race and law enforcement, some of the protests that are going on in the rioting. And uh, we hope you enjoyed part one where we're hearing a, a very vigorous and uh, lengthy conversation from previous uh, members of law enforcement and uh, who two of whom actually happen to be uh, part of the African-American community that's been so impacted by this. And today we're looking at more, uh, more hopeful in the future. And we talk about the things that we'd like to see happen and how there can be more accountability. So we hope you enjoy this here, part two of our discussion on race and law enforcement. Remember to follow us and to rate us and like us on wherever you listen to these podcasts. And if you happen to be watching it on YouTube, throw us a comment in there. Let us know what we did right. Let us know what we did wrong. We'll try to fix it next time. But for now, here we go with part two on race and law enforcement. And welcome back to our part two episode where we're talking about uh, race relations and sort of the, the movements that are taking place and uh, some of the things that are coming out of, uh, of the protests uh, and, and the riots, if you will, um, which are unfortunately coming too quickly after some of the protests. I'm joined again, as always, by Ashley Gorbolja Moldonado and Jeff Daly, my co-hosts. And if you're listening to this part two, you should probably go back and listen to part one. But if you're just joining us now, we're, we're joined by Autry James, uh, the past uh, department uh, judge advocate for California, who is a retired police officer and now a district attorney. We're joined by Sean Powers, who is a former NYPD officer uh, who served in Harlem and other similar areas. And we've got Hugh Cripps, who Hugh Crooks, excuse me, who served uh, 29 and a half years as a police officer in Los Angeles, including through the L.A. King riots. Now, guys, uh, the, whenever you have a, a movement like this, some of the goals are not identified because they're basically essentially leadership. And we're seeing basically three buzzwords that are coming out of this. The first is disband, which is what's coming out of uh, areas like Minneapolis, where they're talking about dis disbanding. Another is defunding, which is not technically defunding. What they're talking about there is less police resources and more towards the, uh, you know, caseworkers and people to help out in the area, which would hopefully have an ancillary effect of lowering it. And the third thing we're hearing a lot about is the de-escalation that, uh, you know, you can't once the the main goal here should be that everyone walks away happily and so let's de-escalate these situations and you have a a drunk driver and you arrest him if he tries to flee on foot he no longer you know poses the same kind of uh harm to society as he did when he was driving a vehicle obviously that's a a dangerous prospect there um so Audrey, I want to start with you. What what do you think about these three movements? Do you see any validity to the to the disband movement, or do you think that's rhetorical hyperbole? Or what do you think about this? Yeah, the disband movement is hard for me to get behind uh, because the idea of disbanding police. Well, what are we going to put in their place? You know, if that's where we're headed, and. and I just don't see that as working right now. I think that there is an absolute need for law enforcement uh, within our communities, and you know how that how that looks. Maybe that will change eventually, uh, or or as we go further into this. But the idea of just no police at all that concerns me. The defund portion of that, however, is intriguing to me, 
And it's intriguing to me because I've always said we Americans ask way too much of our police. Okay. If you think about the average policeman in America has a high school education, maybe some college, not necessarily has college, but could have some college. Uh, so you're getting guys who are coming out two, three years from high school, putting them through roughly six months of training and then telling them, plus another maybe year's worth of field training, um, although I don't think it's quite that long, uh, and, and then telling them to go out and deal with all of these different social issues, not just criminal issues, but social issues. I, as a law enforcement officer, am not prepared to deal with homeless people. I am, you know, the, the whole issue of homeless. Maybe if a homeless person is committing a crime, that's one thing. But the issue of surrounding homelessness, I'm poorly equipped to deal with that. Uh, the, the issue of uh, mental health, uh, persons who are going through a mental health crisis. Okay? I have no very little training on how to deal with someone who is going through a mental health crisis. And I'll be honest with you, I probably have more than most law enforcement officers. Um, but, so how am I, what tools do I have to really address that issue? There are people out there who are mental health professionals and we should be putting money towards them. And if it means taking some money out of police budgets in order to, to have mental health professionals available to deal with mental health crises as opposed to having a policeman, I'm fine with that. I, I actually, in, uh, in law school, I wrote a paper on that very issue, having to deal with policing and mental health issues and looking at some of the models um, around the nation. And there are agencies that are working with mental health professionals um, to deal with people in those crises as opposed to having police deal with them. So I'm definitely for you know, taking some of the money from police and putting it into other community services as kind of a uh, a way to link the police with those with those groups that can do better for our civilian population. All right, I'm and, gonna I'm gonna uh, throw the, I'm gonna shift up the order here, and I'm gonna go to Sean next. But uh, it's kind of the same question, but I'd like you to address to address specifically de-escalation if you can. Uh, Obviously, if you're working in Harlem, uh, you're outnumbered in terms of, you know, what's going on. So you probably had to approach things from a different uh, perspective. And, and de-escalating was probably vitally important to uh, your success. So could you address that just briefly here? Yeah, I, 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 I was told and I was pretty good at that um, by my peers. And again, they were all of color. Um, the number one thing is I would laugh, you know, I, I would come out with a big smile on my face and I'd say, Hey, what's your problem? You know, what, what are you doing? If they were attacking us, but if it was a regular, pro regular protest where there's no crimes being committed, I'm supporting that. Even, even I'm supporting the protest. I might not be supporting what they're protesting against or protesting for, but I support the protest. And again, if, if there's no crimes being committed, go right ahead. That's, that's what our country is based on. You know, you get a right to say what you want to say. You get a right to criticize what you want to criticize. 
And these protests that are out there today would be perfect, except for one, I do think that she'll be wearing masks. Um, <laughs> and the other thing, too, is you have these people looting. What that does is I don't think they're really protesters that are out there that's doing that looting. I think there's people that are out there that's doing that looting is bringing that message down. It's actually destroying what they're trying to say. Because, yeah. like, oh, yeah, there's a protest out there, and these stores were broken into. There might be two separate groups of people, but the way it's being told to us is it's the same group that's doing the same negative acts. But when I had to do it face-to-face, and, you know, I'm there on the line, and it's like, listen, can't go down this street. And you would come up, I'd say, and, and I, would, I would just... Up, oh, did we? Uh, it looks like yeah, we. <laughs> looks like we might have lost Sean there. Uh, Hugh, we're going to go to you as well, and specifically, mm. I mean, you've seen the after effects with the uh, Rodney King uh, riots, and that. Oh. Yeah, we lost you in the middle there, uh, Sean. But of course, that's how it always works. Yeah. If <laughs> <laughs> you wanted to recap the last minute there, if you had something. I, I could do it in 30 seconds, probably 10. If, if the cops act civilly, they can talk to the crowd. And hopefully the crowd will respond in kind. But if you come out, like, we're going to stop you. We're going, we're, you know, if you come out too strong, then, then you're automatically antagonizing those or, or putting them in a state of fear. Just come out and say, listen, you guys can't go down this street, but you can go down that street and... If you talk civilly, your the response, if they're true, true protesters, just for their cause, they keep their cause heard and beat right, they will respond civilly. I think part of the social contract is you act the way you should in accord with your situation. So when I am an infantry sergeant in Afghanistan, I'm using a certain vernacular that I might not use when I'm in church. Uh, you know, that it, it's going to be a lot of different <laughs> words that I'm using there. And I think one problem we see is that, you know, when the police show up with the face shields on and the riot shields and the batons in hand, you've changed the dynamic of the situation to where you're no longer even acting defensively. You're just saying, I challenge you to start throwing bricks at me. So I have seen some relatively creative, uh, I've seen specifically, and I wish I could remember this sheriff's name, but he was out in the middle of them, hugging people and walking around arm in arm with them. We've seen other times where the police have put down the shields and said, we don't need them here. And I, I think you're absolutely right that I think strength invites other strength. Uh, mm -hmm. And if you approach someone from a, a place of kindness and a place of respect, generally speaking, I think you'll get that back. Now, Hugh, I, I did want to go to you and I, and I wanted to talk about, you know, when everything does go off the rails, which it did with the with the Rodney King situation, what I mean, from the disband, defund, to escalate, I don't know what happens if a riot happens and we have disbanded the police. At the same time, I'm not comfortable with them having armored vehicles. But maybe you can maybe you can talk a little bit about how you see that dynamic working. Well, okay, can't you can't disband the police? You end up with anarchy. Our, our civilization is, our, our democracy is built on having those police there. But you, and you hit it before when you said a lot of it is respect. You've talked to people that have been in law enforcement and they've had a positive. When they dealt with people, 
they dealt from a position of respect. I talked to, and I remember way back when I was on the street talking to a gangbanger, but you know what I'd say, Mr. Such and Such, and I gave him, and he gave me that same respect. Do you know how many, if I can tell you, and they can probably assure you, how many people that I had talked to that I never had to, had to run to, to, because I found out, I'd asked them, now, Mr. Daly, do you have any warrants? And Jeff would say, well, as a matter of fact, I've got two. I uh, said, so, well, you know, Mr. Daly, I'm going to have to take you to jail. Okay, I know. And he would go on to go to jail. Mm-hmm. But I've given them, him that respect as a human being and as a man. Now, if I don't do that, then I'm going to run into a lot of problems. And I'm just going to go from what I've seen with the last, I'm going to say, protests. You've got two different groups. You've got protesters, but you have organized looters out there. And I'm going to tell you, it was so funny. The first day this all happened, I'm looking at television, and I realized something. I Something that caught me as odd. And that is, they a, a store was being looted. But as they're, they're coming out of the store with these bags that obviously they did not get in the store full of looted material, three of them would run outside and within 25 seconds, a car would drive up to the door. They'd jump in the car and a car would take off. And I saw this like three or four different times. Mm-hmm. Now, you can tell me that's not organized. That's organized. These are people, this is what they're doing. I don't care why this illegal. Mm-hmm. I, I'm totally against that. Those people who are protesting are not the ones throwing the rocks a lot of times. That's the people that are, hey, listen, we're going to, and I've seen, and I just saw them, that right the next two days after that, there was a Snapchat put out in Orange County saying, you know what, we're going to, there, there, there's a protest being organized. We're going to go there and take what we want. And they put this on social media. Mm-hmm. And I'm shocked. I'm like, who would do this? But there are people out there that this is, and their whole idea was we will get what we want, forget what, you know, and, and I have a problem with that. Mm-hmm. I, Jeff had actually, uh, he had made a great statement uh, last week where, you know, you'd have kind of the, traditional protesters clocking out like it worked and then you get the rioters clocking in and remind me of that old cartoon i was like the sheepdog and he would clock in and clock out and and i think that's what we're seeing but jeff you had something you wanted to add there yeah i wanted to add because it's something i've seen that's shocking on uh social media and uh from actually some legion members this kind of miscommunication of who what, protesters versus rioters and looters so what you'll have are people who, who have a certain train of thought will use the looters as an opportunity to downgrade the, the legitimate movement. In fact, there's mm-hmm. a person on there. I actually had to block him because I was getting into all these arguments. But every time something happened, he'd be like, that's why he would post. This is why we need to send in the military to wipe out these savages or animals, depending on the day. And he does not understand that this is coded language. Mm-hmm. And I know exactly who he's talking about. 
It infuriated me to the point where I lose my temper online in, in, in trying to educate somebody with an intellectual butt whooping. And it's, and it, it didn't, it didn't work. I mean, it worked. He actually called me and tried to explain to me and did the whole, I grew up with black, my best friend's black. And yet you're calling them savages and animals on Facebook. So and I so I appreciate Hugh that you that you so eloquently divided the audience between protester and the presence of of people who are opportunist opportunists I call yep. them opportunists and they're taking the opportunity to get some so uh, I appreciate that and I and I uh, and I apologize to everyone on social media for my little breakdown and letting somebody get to me but. I know he's tangentially talking about me and I, when he's saying savages and animals and I just can't, I can't take it. Yeah. And uh, I, I do have to, I have to, one thing. Sean had some as well. Go ahead. Sean, go ahead, Dave. Yeah. What I wanted to say is even within the protesters, there are a group of professional agitators because you can see them no matter what the cause is, you can see them. Yep. In New York City, and they're fighting for this, or, you know, they're going to the Israelis or these protests. And what they're doing is they're inciting people into, you know, act inappropriately. Where these people are going out there, they have a, a vision of what they want to do. They have a cause that they want to go and, and protest about. And you see these professional agitators in there, and it's very easy to pick them out. They use, and now everybody's wearing a face mask, so it's a little harder. Um, <laughs> But they usually show up with their face masks. They, you know, they have the little cans of spray paint, the backpacks. And, you, and sometimes you see them, they'll have hatchets, you know, where the hand will be sticking out. Or you can find a ha the head. Because if they found it's easy to break a window with a hatchet that they can carry, you know, in their backpack. And those are the people you have to single out from these protests. And they can turn somebody. Because once you get that crowd mentality, it's, it's hard to break. Yep. And these professional agitators, they're trained to do this. They're trained to lead that crowd mentality into a negative way. We've seen them. We, you know, the NYPD's identified a bunch of them. They run in, grab those guys, pull them apart, get them away from the rest of the protesters, and all of a sudden you've got a peaceful march. You've got a peaceful mm -hmm. protest going on. So, you know, again, there's too many people out there that are breaking into these protests for the wrong cause and leaving them to be criticized negatively. Jeff, uh, last time we were on, we, we came up with the, the, the maxim or the motto, if you will, that uh, nothing good happens after midnight. I, I'd like to move that we also adopt that nothing good happens when you have some guy wearing a face mask with a man bun and he's carrying a hatchet. Can we all agree that if you're, if you're walking in the company of a man with a, with a hatchet, things are not going to go your way. Hugh, you uh, wanted to weigh in. On I, this. I just, I just wanted to, to tell you the, uh, the, the, the Snapchat that was sent out had a uniform for the looters to wear face mask, black hoodie, black pants, and a uh, backpack and gloves. This is what they told them. Uh, this is in writing. I'm like, I'm totally shocked. I'm like, somebody would actually put this out. And this is in Orange County. And they said, oh, yeah, we're going to blend in. And they said, we will blend in with the protesters and then we'll make our move. Wow. Hmm. All That's right. Well, 
we will go to Ashley to ask the second round this time, and then uh, we'll go to Jeff for round three, and then uh, we'll probably wrap it up for this recording, and uh, we'll do a, a third one. But Ashley, fire away. All right. So we kind of already hinted a little bit at the social media. I know we have a Snapchat fan on here, obviously, and <laughs> I'm kind of a, a Facebook, a Facebook, Insta, Instagram gal myself. But you know, I'm open. I'm open to everyone's uh, likings. But I wanted to talk a little bit about um, the media monster because you know, social media is a great way to connect and share ideas. But it's also there's a lot of room for trolls out there and. I think as the American Legion, we have an opportunity here to to educate and to help others understand perspectives, which is exactly why we're doing this podcast, right? Right. So, you know, the media monster, you know, how do we combat that? I know that some of us, you know, we have one news network we prefer over the other. And, you know, there's always going to be this contorted um, advertisement of what's happening, right? So, you know, differentiating to, to your point, uh, the, you know, the looters from protesters, like how do, how do we combat that? I'd love to hear your perspective, your opinions on how do we help not only educate, but showcase that, you know, the media monster is out there and how do we, how do we look beyond that? Who wants to take that one first? Ooh. Audrey, okay. okay. It looks like Hugh's got it. Okay. <laughs> our, our Snapchat. My, my Snapchat. No, <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not a snack snap. The, the, by the way, the Snapchat was given to me, shown to me by my God, my grand, granddaughter. She's the one that pulled it up. I, I don't know anything about this. I go, what's that? She goes, that's Snapchat. If I go on Snapchat and I find you. <laughs> well, what I've noticed, just so you notice, what I've, what I've seen is a lot of the protesters have become aware of what these people are doing. Just like Sean said, they've come aware and they now are questioning people that are doing things that are not, and they have people walking around the crowd making sure, uh, are they, we need to follow this because if, if they do this, that is not a police officer that I know of that will want to beat somebody in the head because they are doing what is their right to do, and that's the protest. They will be the first one to say, we want to, We would love to join you because what you're doing is right. But the fact of the matter is, no, they don't want to do that. They, so they have people, and I've seen them now, go through the crowd, and they're looking for these people, the professional agitators, and, and, and to get them out of their crowd. And the people that don't look like they don't belong, and they watch them. You know, so that, that I know that a lot of the protests, that's why all of a sudden you went from protest looters to just protests because the protesters are saying, hey, they're using us, our legitimate uh, ability to protest, and they're using us to do what they want to pull these illegal acts, and we are getting blamed for it. Yeah, let's go to, let's go to Sean next. Uh, to answer the same question, but how can we as the American Legion combat? Well, I guess we got Ashley back now, but uh, how can we as the American Legion combat some of this on social media? Um, first of all, um, accentuate the positive. You know, I hate to use that term, but put out the other side of it. I mean, I, I, I saw the other side. Uh, I, after 9-11, you know, People knew you were a New York City cop. Forget about it. They, they, they lavished you with praise. They were hugging you and kissing you like, thank you, thank you, thank you. And then, you know, I'm retired, been retired for a while, and, but I'm hearing it from friends of mine, you know, again, 
doing that peer counseling and it's hurting them. It's like, you know, how do we go from this to this? And if we had the truth out there of what these cops are really doing, and again, we're talking about the majority, not the minority who's doing those criminal acts themselves. Um, it, it would be it would be so great, you know. But it, it, some of the precincts do that. They have their little Facebook page. They put their stuff on there. Nobody reads that because it's not hitting the news. The sensationalism isn't there. Um, I I don't I don't know how to say it. You know, I don't know. I, bad news sells. So that's what people are going to look at. They're going to look at negative things because that, that's uh, what attracts us. You know, unless you're watching, you know, the Hallmark Channel 24 hours a day, that's that's what you do. You look for the bad. You go, oh, wow, this happened here or that happened there. Um, I, I don't know the answer to that. I mean, except maybe what you're doing today, you know, putting on cops who understand what the good side is and what the bad side is. Maybe there should be more of this. Maybe there should be more discussion, having panels with people who are seeing the negative side of cops with positive cops. I know. I, I think yeah. that's fantastic because, you know, all too often we, we gravitate towards the negative and in order for us to change that, we have to, we have to counteract and we have to put more positive out there and we have to do it in, in high volumes because we need to drown out some of that negativity. Like our first response shouldn't be like, oh, what, what bad thing happened today? It's how I feel sometimes when I look at my phone. I go through my news and it's, it's showing me, you know, uh, you know, whatever, whatever you want to plug in there, right? So I, I think that's a really, really good value point. Audrey? Yeah, I was going to say, we <clears throat> people who are watching, you know, the regular media and the social media have to be careful and kind of put it all in perspective. And, and I use this as an example. This last year, I was in a trial that went like six or seven months. And literally every single day, there was an article in the newspaper. And I'd read an article or watch the 30-second the blurb on TV. And I'd be like, yeah, that, that kind of happened. But that that the way that they're telling it is not quite the way it it rolled out. You know, I was there. I saw. I was partaking in it. Mm -hmm. So the media is taking a small portion of a story, putting it out there, and trying to get your eyes on either on their newspaper, their magazine, or their uh, social media website. We as Americans can't take everything that's in the media to be the exact truth. I don't think that the media is quote unquote fake news. Okay, I, I, I'm not gonna subscribe to that. But I do believe that we have to remember that they don't have the ability to tell us everything. So we take some personal responsibility and research these things that concern us. If you're concerned about something that happened, I guarantee you, if you dig a little bit deeper in the Google, you will find more information about it, <laughs> you know, on social media. I, I'm with Sean. You, you gotta, you gotta offer another perspective. It's easy on social media to fall in with all of your friends who are negative about everything, mm -hmm. but it's also easy to provide just, Hey, for perspective, here's another side of it. This is what I see, or this is my experience in those particular situations. And that, particularly if done in a non-threatening way and not calling people names, 
can promote some unique discussion. Absolutely. Thank you. Yeah. So uh, my, my thought, it's really no different than when I was in Afghanistan. And, you know, we would, somebody would shoot at us and CNN would show up like a SEAL team, like beside the road, ready to videotape it. <laughs> and we'd go out there to hand out book bags and there'd be thousands of people, thousands of people lined up, little girls who were getting their first book bags with crayons and paper and it, it just, uh, you know, emotions running through me just, and you look around and there wasn't a media person in sight. Uh, you know, I guess, I guess book bags to little girls doesn't mean as much as bullets to big boys, but you know, it, it's, it's, uh, it's tough reality. And I, it, Ashley, thank you for those, uh, for that question, Jeff, we're up to you, buddy. What do you got? Well, first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to call you out, sir. Oh. Uh, we wrote out, we wrote out questions, uh, ahead of time. You managed to squeeze in three questions in one question with your defund, <laughs> disband, <laughs> de-escalate, and went through my entire list. That was it. So, that was so, the first year of law school training right there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I've, got one, I've got one question in 27 parts. There you go. So I'm going to use my Marine Corps ethos of adapt, improvise, overcome. Right. So I, I have to adapt and improvise and overcome <laughs> you, Mr. CV. So... So it's it's interesting that we're taking a, a lot of this from the I'm taking this question from the whole of the day, and let us not pretend that we're going to uh, in our lifetime, even Ashley's, get rid of uh, racism bias and all of that. But how do we, uh, how do we minimize the effect that someone's bias can have while they are performing their job and especially with relation to recruiting, training, and disciplining in the police department. Because we're going to have people, and, and Hugh said it all earlier, that we all have biases. I have a bias against anybody affiliated or has affinity for Ohio State University. It's just you who know I what? Am. You just went there, buddy. You just went there. So, but <sighs> rage, did you rage, rage, rage. But in my day-to-day -day operations, I don't I, I don't act on that. So how do we how do we make sure that our one percenters, if that's the number we're gonna go with, don't do that so that people aren't afraid for their lives when they leave their homes? And I guess we start with whoever wants to and I'm actually I'm gonna start with Sean. I'm gonna start with Sean because he is the most passionate face on this on this screen right now i actually feel his pain when he's feeling pain i feel his disgust when he's when he's disgusted and he's just i gotta he's got to come to california so we can hang out so i'm going to throw the question to you first sir yeah i'm sorry about that well my face expressions but i see that I little that little tiny little thing so i don't realize i'm doing that but um yeah i thought i was being a little more stoic <laughs> um, obviously not um, and, if, and if you notice, yeah, the way to, the way to keep me quiet is, you know, tie my hands together. Um, but getting back to that, it's number one thing that I see is the recruiting process. You have to, have to, have to, have to get the right person in the job. There are, we talked about the 99%. Very true. But there are also people, unfortunately, especially in a police department like, you know, the NYPD, where one time we had 44,000 of us out there. I mean, we were bigger than a Coast Guard. Um, mm -hmm. You have mm -hmm. to watch 
what you're bringing in there because you're giving them so much power. And oh, sorry, am I still back with you? Yeah, yep. you got it. Yeah, I, I had a do not disturb, and I still got a call that came in through. Um, but what happens is you, you get these people in there and they, they step through the cracks. You get guys who are criminals who want to become cops because it's if you're the one stealing, obviously you can get away with it. And we've seen numerous amounts of that. And then you get the other group who are the bullies. And I don't know why they get through, why they get through. And it's, it just amazes me that these people get through where they have to sit on somebody's neck for all that time. I mean, it's, it's impossible for me to think that would happen because what I've seen um, is if you get a cop with this like that, there's, there's going to be three or four cops getting there, grabbing him, pulling him off, and, and yelling in his face. You know, what the hell is your problem? Excuse my language, but I wanted to say a little yeah. stronger words than yeah. that. Um, and I've never seen it like that where somebody could do that and, and not have other cops react negatively towards him. I, I've never experienced that. So maybe, you know, I'm spoiled in that aspect. Um, you start off with that. Yeah, clean house. I mean, really, really clean house. Um, and it's got to be done properly because you, you might have somebody who has tons of complaints, but it's because he's working in a strong neighborhood and he's taking a ton of drug dealers off the street. So they, they're like, hey, wait a minute, we want this guy off the street. So you got to evaluate where the complaints are coming from. If they're coming from the citizenry, you know, and not the criminals, then you got to take that into account and get rid of that. You have to get rid of that person. And it's just like the old, the old adage, you know, you know, the rotten apple spoils a bunch. And it's true. He's going, oh, this. And, and you, you got to get rid of that. Um, you have to be, you have to show the positive side. I mean, up here we're seeing it. We have our community affairs guys out there. And when I was talking before, I was saying, you know, here I am. I'm talking to these people face to face. We're saying, listen, you can't come through here. You can't do this. This is where you have to go. Um, but on the other side, you know, around the corner, back behind the street, those guys with the shields, with the, with the, you know, armored personnel carriers, they're right there. But they're telling us, hold them off, and then if we need, they go out there. And we also have to expose those who are doing the negative, those who are pulling those people into committing crimes, who are committing crimes themselves. And that's disgusting. I mean, when you hear somebody throwing a Molotov cocktail into a van with four police officers that were inside, you know, by the grace of God, they got out and survived. Yeah. And it's, we've got to do the positive side, unfortunately. And I mean, what we're doing here today is great, but we have to expand this and do other things like this, where we have people from the community talking to the cops. And once you get communication going and a, and a respectful communication, I don't think there'll be that much of a problem in the, going forward if that can happen. Yeah, I, I'll add to that. Um, I, I think everything Sean said was great, and, and I believe it. Um, the other thing, though, I think is equally important is not just the hiring and the recruiting process, but like the military, non-commissioned officers make a unit or break a unit. Frontline sergeants in police departments make or break a police department. 
if you want to have a unit that runs well, that is respectful of people, then you have to make sure that you have a first line supervisor who is instilling that in those individuals. You know, I, uh, when I, I went to the worship weekends, nights, okay? And on that shift, who are you gonna get? You're gonna get all of the young ones. Everybody who's brand new, uh, don't know a whole lot about policing. They wanna run and gun 24 seven. And what was happening in, in my first month, what I realized is, is that I'm getting all of these low level complaints. Oh, this officer stopped me. This officer was rude. This officer, those types of things. No violence or anything like that. Not, not those types of complaints. It was because these guys were just out there, just kind of running around doing whatever and wasn't taking the time to talk to people. Okay. So for that first six months, you know, I had these discussions about all of these different complaints. Hey, I got this complaint about such and such. I got this complaint doing this, you know, of talking to the officers one on one, trying to get, get them to change their behavior. At the end of that six months, we started a new rotation, same officer, same sergeant. What I saw from the beginning of that year to the end of year is an absolute change because the number of complaints dropped, number one, because I was there to call them out on those things that they were doing that that needed to be dealt with. You know, if you if you stop somebody, how how hard is it, Hugh or Sean, how hard is it to say the reason why I stopped you is because yeah. I mean, good evening. Oh, yeah. I stopped you because of this. That de-escalates all kinds of situations, okay? If you stop a guy walking down the street because he it really looks suspicious, he just came out from the side of this building, it's closed, it's dark, it's midnight. Hey, can I talk to you a moment? I saw you come off the side of this closed building and I was wondering what was going on. I mean, it's very simple to do those types of things for folks. And if you do that, people will respect it. They may not always be happy about it, but they will at least respect the fact that you took the time to explain what was going on. You don't have to raise your voice to everybody. You can talk softly to people. As a hostage negotiator, what they teach you, talk low and slow. When, when people get up, you go down. Talk low, talk slower. Brings people right down. Brings them right down. You won't, they don't even realize it. It's, you know, so if you have a frontline supervisor who's paying attention to what his or her troops are doing and then going out and correcting those little microaggressions, if you will, uh, you are going to have a unit that's going to work out a whole lot better. That that training doesn't stop at the academy. It continues. The monitoring doesn't stop, you know, when they have that day to day uh, recruit training officer, the, the sergeants they have to make sure that they're doing their job as well. Uh, I, I really believe that, you know, if, you, if you're making sure that you're putting high quality sergeants in positions, uh, you're gonna have a much better police department. All right, Audrey, I, I'm gonna- you. I'm gonna oh. uh, I just wanna add one thing to what Audrey says. One of the things you have to realize that first line supervisor has, there's a liability factor if, his, if, if he has people he's supervising and they screw up and he does not have total control, he is as liable as they are. 
And mm-hmm. a lot of times what I'm seeing is when they try, they go against some of these officers, it's not necessarily the officer's fault. It's that supervisor's fault because they didn't have control over them. Had they had control, that would not have happened. And it should, and, 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 and I hate to say it this way, you start banging some of them supervisors for what these guys are doing, you're going to see a whole different drop in the way things are happening. Yeah. No. Jeff, did you want to wrap that's... that one up? Yeah, because uh, I was going to talk low and slow to Autry, see if I could uh, <laughs> <laughs> dem- demonstrate demonstrate that I have learned something here today. <laughs> but I'm going to have to do my homework and get back to you on that one. But let's, uh, let's I, I wanted to kind of just quickly go around because one of the things when I first joined the American Legion was I noticed that we honor exceptional policing from the post level all the way up all the way up to the national level with our law and order nights. And is that enough for us to do to make life better for the good police officers? Or do we, especially because it's one of our pillars, do we need to draft resolutions and start lobbying for some of these changes that make life better for the citizens and for the good officers that are out there? Yeah, let's do... uh brief answers on that one because that that's actually going to be the topic of part three here uh coming oh. up because i i like it I, I like it that much but if you guys want to weigh in just briefly on that before we uh, take a tactical pause and go to part three autry you got do you want to comment on that uh yeah I, i'll take a shot at that one uh i do believe that we as the as the american legion we have a voice in so many areas and you know Law enforcement fits into that national security. Uh, a well-trained, well-working police department um, that is respected by its community is should be part of that national security goal. So I do think that things like dealing with these issues, the, the, the American Legion weighing in on police brutality and how people of color are being treated in their communities, I think is important and we should as an organization do more. That was my effort to be short. Yeah, and uh, Sean, did you want to weigh in on that? Um, All I can say is ditto. You know, everything that was just said was absolutely perfect. The only only pet peeve that I had is I nominated officers, and unfortunately, the American Legion said a picture of them had to follow them through in the process. And two of them where, you know, they were already promoted on their way into uh, either plainclothes or undercover units as like, uh, you know, you know, go on to the American Legion. Oh, that's the guy. I know who that is. You know? Yeah. It's unfortunately with the, the Internet, the way it is in Google, they can find out who the what the guy looks like. So. And Hugh, did you want to weigh in on that one? No, I'm just going to ditto what, what's already been said and go on and move on along. All right. Well, great. We'll call that the end of uh, round two here. <laughs> I, on round three, we're gonna we're gonna keep it a little bit shorter, and we're gonna we're gonna uh, allow everybody to have sort of their final say, and uh, we'll each ask uh, one question to one audience member, and we'll go from there. So you were discharged with a twenty percent disability rating, but now you can't hear so well and need help. Contact an American Legion service officer. Service officers are free of charge, and they help all veterans. Find one near you with our online tool at legion.org 
forward slash service officers. All right, everybody, we are back here from a quick break, and we're going to go to sort of round three and some closing arguments, if you will. Uh, Autry, uh, I'm going to aim this at you, but uh, we're looking at, uh, obviously, we have a problem with balancing the civil rights of individuals uh, who may be, uh, may be being arrested or anything else with the need to also uh, give the individual officers enough latitude that they can do so safely. And there's sort of a legal uh, term out there that's that's coming up, qualified immunity, which right. basically says, if you could just go into what qualified immunity is and tell me just briefly how you think we balance the civil rights of people who may or may not have had a crime going on with the, the need to protect our police officers and uh, to keep and retain police officers. Right. So just real briefly here, qualified immunity in essence prevents law enforcement officers from being sued for doing their job. Now, if they do it correctly and, you know, and they followed all the rules and everything like that, the law basically says you can't sue them. All right. If there is a question of fact, uh, uh, yes, if there's a question of fact, then that can be put before a jury to decide the issue, all right? So this process is something that was created through the courts, um, and some states have statutes that actually talk about qualified immunity, others don't. The issue with qualified immunity, though, is it's kind of a, it's a double-edged sword because qualified immunity doesn't just uh, apply to law enforcement officers in the case of taking a life, but it also applies towards law enforcement officers, for instance, in an investigation. Officer gets a, you know, a report, he goes out, he investigates it, he makes a determination. People feel like he didn't investigate it to his fullest extent or they don't like the outcome of it and that it should be a different way. You don't get to sue the law enforcement officer uh, for that outcome because of qualified immunity, as long as he's done, he or she has done everything that they're supposed to do uh, within reason, okay? So if you say, let's take away qualified immunity altogether, then what happens is, is every time an officer acts, he or she could be brought before, brought into court and sued for each one of those actions. And the same would happen with prosecutors. You don't want that to happen because what happens in that case is, it's like the person who speaks the loudest or has the best attorneys out there are going to sue, sue law enforcement officers because they didn't get the outcome they wanted. All right. So the issue of qualified immunity, we have to be very careful about what we do with that and look at the whole issue. Right. With respect to law enforcement officers, law enforcement officers have the right to, to protect themselves like anyone else. So they have the right to self-defense and the defense of others, just like everyone else. Okay. What we have to make sure that we do is we don't set the bar differently in terms of self-defense uh, when it applies to law enforcement officers. It has to be the same application to non-law officers. So they don't get a pass or the benefit of the doubt and where someone else might not get that benefit of the doubt. You have to treat them the same. That has to be the, the standard. The other issue is, is that we have to make sure, and this kind of not necessarily what goes where you were saying, but the other thing is, is that from a prosecutor's standpoint, I need a jury to believe what I'm going to tell them. 
Okay, I'm, I spend time picking juries, putting information before them. And if I don't have a diverse jury, a, a, a jury who is, you know, from all different walks of life that comes in there and I can't seat that diverse jury, then your, your outcomes are going to be only one way. And right now what we're seeing is people don't like the outcomes. When I'm trying to decide or when a, a DA is trying to decide whether or not they're going to uh, charge a law enforcement officer in a case of taking someone's life, one of the things that has to be uh, considered is, is, can you prove the case beyond a reasonable doubt to 12 people? And that's a hard thing to do. That's an extremely hard thing to do. Okay. Now, when we put law enforcement officers on trial, we know that many times they walk, right? I mean, that's the truth. We've seen that happen, Philando Castillo and many others. We've seen that happen. If if there is if 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 district attorneys are going to feel differently about that, we need to have more people showing up in the jury process. So don't don't disregard those jury summonses. You know, people of color, come on in. Come in, sit there, be a part of the system. The system only works if everybody takes their part seriously, and that includes everyday citizens. We need you to come in and go to jury service and sit in judgment of all of these different cases so that we know exactly what the community feels about these different things. You know, if the, your only experience is that every time I take a law enforcement officer to trial under these circumstances, I lose, then ethically, I can't say that I can win that case beyond a reasonable doubt. And ethically, I can't charge that case. So, I hope that kind of answers. Yeah, yeah, that's absolutely what I was looking here. Ashley, you're up. How do, how do I fall? <laughs> that's fantastic. Wow. Audrey. All right, Hugh. You're up. Same question? You're up. No, no you different question. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Got him. All right. So... You know, uh, and F F or we've previously previously discussed. You know, the the social issues. There's there's criminal issues, and then there's these maybe lack of or lack thereof, if you will, community services. How do we move forward in you know this this conversation of of funding other complementive services for police officers? Uh, it was actually mentioned earlier that. There are a number of services that could probably be combined with the, you know, it's not so much a defunding, but a, 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 a variation of how the funds. An example, see, I happen, I happen to have, and my wife and my daughter are both social workers. My daughter is a clinical psychologist. My wife actually worked for Department of Children's Services for LA County when she would, before she retired. She, when she would go on a call, and she worked the ER for a while, you know, with emergency responding, but you call and say, I think this kid's being abused, whatever. She would not, she learned the best way to do it was to go, and she'd go to the local, whatever the precinct was, and they would assign a car to go with her. And that way, if, if she saw what she considered was abuse, she could take those kids right then 
And, the, and, and therefore, the other thing that happened is you don't get a black and white a law enforcement officer going there and having to make that determination. She's a trained professional, right? I couldn't do her job. She couldn't do my job. But she's a trained professional to say, this child should be taken out of this. At, right now, we expect a law enforcement officer to roll up there and to do that job, oh, you can make the determination whether this kid's being abused or not. That's just one example, the kid's being abused or not. I mean, so there's a number, I'm sure there's a number of ways you can end up with people that would end up traveling with the officers or having the officers ready to call. I know, like in LA County, we have, to, they have a pet team, which is, you know, those are people who sit there and say, are you capable can you do certain things? Should you be put in a 5150 hold because you're not capable of taking care of yourself? But you, that is not all police officers. The unfortunate part, and, and, and Audrey put it really, really, really nicely, we expect police officers to do everything. Things that are totally, they've never been trained for, things that they have no clue but they have to figure it out on the spot and come up with something that 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 works you know and not necessary and most of the time it's not necessarily because someone has broken a law and i know and i can imagine what it's like in new york how many times do you get someone that's got a mental health problem i mean i mean you look at you see them see them shaking their head the, the, i mean that's one of the biggest or an example being and i have to laugh about this you, you end up stopping someone because they're diabetic and they're going into a diabetic coma. And yeah, you think you think they are drunk. Yeah. And that happens more often than not. So now you've made that police officer. He's not just a law enforcement. He's part paramedic. He's part social worker. You know, all these things you require him to do. So if, the, if you want to defund then make sure these people are available to go and, and roll when the officers roll. And those calls, yeah, you can have an officer there, but those calls, let's get a professional out there. Let's get those people out there that know what they're doing. So you can't say, well, it's that officer's fault because he beat up my brother who was having a diabetic coma. You know, he beat up your brother because he, he felt his life was in danger and he didn't know he's a diabetic. You might have known. Well, he know he, at this point, you know, he's acting like he's intoxicated and he's acting like he wants to fight. Thank yeah. you. No, I think that was, <laughs> yeah, we, we need to provide the, the support and others that are professionally trained um, and continue to train and educate our, our, our officers across the country about best practice and, you know, bringing in more community members in the conversation and having maybe some of these policies and laws and some of these things updated and having that community support like Autry had spoken of, you know, everyone plays a part. And even as American Legion members, you know, I've, I've said this multiple times, maybe even on our previous podcast that, you know, volunteerism is one of the greatest forms of democracy because, you know, you can vote once a year, but every time you volunteer in your community, you are now a active stakeholder in what happens in that community. And the same goes for officers. It goes for our trained professionals is that, you know, we have to get out there and we have to make a difference. And if we can put, you know, something on writing, something in paper, more partnerships, more conversations that have to happen in order to best equip our, our officers, our law enforcement, then we need to do that. 
So I appreciate and, and your that response. Makes, that makes a big a big difference. If you've got and you've got a specific cause, you say, okay, we've got this team that's got a social worker and a police officer. We've got this team that's got a uh, a paramedic and a, and a and a police officer. These things will and eventually will make a difference. So you're not really defunding per se. You're just putting those services out there that are desperately needed by the community and not putting them all and this right now everything goes to that police officer you know and and if he doesn't and if he doesn't have that particular expertise i'm, I'm not going to be mean but you want to crash you want to crucify him i mean and it's like hey i'm supposed to know all of this plus all of this and then hope that in the meantime something doesn't happen that i feel like my life is in danger and, and, and I'm going to say one thing before I get off about people who feel their life is in danger. You know, I've heard people say this. Oh, well, he shot him. He should have shot him in the arm. I don't know about you. If you've ever been in a situation that you feel like your life is in danger, you are lucky to hit the broad side of a barn. Even though, and just remember, these are people that are trained with a weapon at least once a quarter they have to go qualify minimally once every three or four months, right? And even still, they're lucky to hit the target. You know, and so you think that they're actually going to hit the, you, if the, be able, you know, and, and the only reason they're pulling that weapon, and we were taught that, and they will all agree, you have to feel your life, someone else's life, a member of the public, or your partner's life is in mortal danger. Not just they're going to hurt you, you feel you're going to die. Right. I think the public thinks that all police officers are like John Wick. And That's they have right. This... Yep. That's it. Right in the arm. Mr. Daly, you get to uh, close us out with a final question here. I am never going last again because Ashley, like you, did issue creep and have covered <laughs> a big, broad scope of things. Uh, that's also why I don't do mud runs because I'm not fast enough to get through that mud first and I don't want to know what's in the mud when you're last. <laughs> All right, Sean, you're the only one I don't know and we've kind of got on this issue of community. So, and and it's, it's perfect for you because you worked in a small unit that worked in a specific community. And I assume that you knew a lot of the, the residents and business owners there. I'm wondering uh, what is your perspective on the value of community policing in, uh, I read a story of uh, a department that assigned officers to specific areas and part of their duty was to knock on the doors and introduce themselves to the people in the community in which they were going to work. And I'm wondering what your thoughts are on the value of that in relation to all the issues that we've talked about. All right, um, well, first let me, take off the, the part where I worked in uh, the plainclothes unit. Because again, there was only six of us, but we worked from all of Manhattan North from 59th Street up to Spite and Dival. So I could be in the Upper East Side, the Upper West Side, Central Park, and minutes later could be in Harlem, Spanish Harlem, Washington Heights. So it, it was totally diverse there. And, you know, getting um, in touch with the community wasn't, wasn't possible. Um, now, on the other side, before I went into that, I was in the 19th Precinct, and I, and I owned I owned my community. That was it. My, I had a beat there. I was, I was a community police officer. 6-2 um, to 6-5, 3rd Avenue to the river. I owned it. Um, 
what I did and what I found out was effective, um, I talked to everybody. I talked to people walking on the street. They would have community meetings. I went in there and I talked to them. And if, if they had problems, I would try to fix it. And, you know, here I am joining the NYPD. Uh, you know, I'm going to go out there, help fight crime. I thought that's what I was going to do. And here I am enforcing the law to keep bicycles, delivery bicycles, off the sidewalks. Um, <laughs> and and it was just like, you know, this is this is what I signed up for. You know, I joined the NYPD, not, you know, East Podunk Police Department. Not saying anything wrong about that, but, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I joined to fight crime. And what I found was, and again, I, this is a laugh, but there was, there was an older lady there. And she was such a sweetheart, could not have been sweeter to me. And she always, you know, she used to say the thing she grew up years ago when she was a little kid, Officer Flaherty, you know, who was on the street. Everybody knew him. He took care of all the kids. When he told you to do something, you did it. Because, you know, he would give you like the smack in the back of the head. And if not, he would tell your parents and they would give you the smack on the back of the head. Um, but I found out one time she was coming again. She's in her late 80s, totally independent, and here's some bicyclist from one of the restaurants hit her, and now you know, again, this is back in the early 90s, hit her and, you know, broke her hip, and now she was housebound, and it just destroyed her life. It's like, oh, wait a second, this is the problem here. This is the problem I've got to address, so I did, and I and they hated me. All the restaurants hated me, the people who were getting orders hated me, and, but it kept somebody else from getting hurt, even though it was not what I wanted to do. It wasn't what I signed up for, you know, that whole hubris there. It was it was what was needed. Mm -hmm. And that's what I had. to. That's what I had to address. And when I left, when I left there to go to that other unit, I mean, the community, they, they sent me, you know, a beautiful piece, of, you know, real parchment, you know, thanking me. I got calls i got accolades letters and you know back then living on the upper east side i mean they were right in touch with the mayor giuliani was the mayor then and they knew him you know they knew his mother lived lived up the street um on different again we're different communities my unit again was just popping in popping out most of the time all you had to do is learn what they want learn what they want from you and unfortunately if they don't like a law, we, you know, we would we would tell them, you know, here's our boss is telling us you have to go and and get get after the people who are breaking this law. And the community was like, that's not so bad. So we have to get them together and have them change the law. You know, listen, talk to the talk to the mayor. This is what he's telling us to do. And it's like, oh, okay. And then the community leaders would get with their community board, and they would get. You know, and it, it would just go up and, and then all of a sudden it gets in front of the New York City Council. And it would say, why are we enforcing this when the community is all right with it? You know, little little like double parking the cars on on some of the days where they can't they can't fit the cars on both sides of the street. You know, that's alternate street parking. And they dropped it. They just as a matter of fact, they just dropped it now in, in New York City. You know, there's some stupid little things out there that. We have to enforce, unfortunately, but we don't make the laws. And the best thing to do is just, you know, you tell people, listen, I have to do this because this is where I'm being told. This is where it's coming down from. 
here's how you can fix it. Get it, get the law changed. But as far as being a community, if a cop doesn't become part with the community, I don't think he's going to be effective, especially if he's going to be in that, that area for a long time. He has to know what's going on. Well, we couldn't uh, we couldn't have asked for a, a better way to close uh, than that. Frankly, I think I think that's perfect. We'll do some final thoughts here. I, I and I and I'll start here. I just wanted to thank everybody for being here. I think this has been a very productive conversation. I think it's a, you know, there's there's going to be people who are listening out there who are going to complain about no matter what happens. People are always going to complain. But the the idea here is that I think my takeaway is that. How about we just respectfully talk to each other, see what the problems are. The police, as Sean just said, the police are out there enforcing the laws. They don't write the laws. They don't make the laws. They might not even have voted for the people that do make the laws. They're out there and they've got a playbook and they're enforcing that playbook. If you have a problem with the way the playbook is written, you don't take it up with the referee. You take it up with Roger Goodell, right? So <laughs> go out there and if you have issues with something, Take it up with the appropriate people. Yelling at a police officer who's standing in a line who doesn't want to be in that line in the first place out there in the middle of a protest, asking him, how could you dare do this? Well, he would dare do this because that's his job, okay? Like he's doing what you people hired him to do. If you don't like something, go and talk to your mayor, go and talk to your governor, go and talk to whoever you need to, but mm -hmm. talk to your elected officials, leave the police alone. They got a tough job to do. Achi, we'll go to you. What are your final thoughts on this? Well, my final thoughts are just to say uh, thank you uh, for doing this. This is something that I would not have expected from necessarily the American Legion. I think it is a super, super important thing to do. Uh, and these issues are things that we should have civil discussions about. So I really appreciate the efforts of yourself and Holly, who's off screen, and others uh, who, who are putting this together. Um, I, I really I think it means it really means a lot to me to know that the organization that I love and support uh, is doing something like this. I feel like you are supporting me back. So thank you, Sean. Uh, again, I, I, I say this ditto. Thank you very much. Uh, we do need this discussion. And maybe maybe we should also point out that there are so many good cops out there that we want to see those guys taken away from the police department more than a public does. Nobody hates a bad cop more than a good cop. And I'm sure my other guests will reiterate the same thing. So give us, tell us if, if they're on local levels, tell, tell your hierarchy, listen, you've got bad cop here. This is what this guy is doing. This guy's a bully. He's this, he's that, whatever the situation is. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I don't know anything else to say except, you know, thank you for this and hopefully it'll expand from here. All right, Hugh, you're up. <laughs> thank you. No, being from a, a little slightly different point of view, as a chief, I probably fired at least 20 officers. Just outright fired them because of their actions and what they didn't do, what they were supposed to do. And like you said, by, but by far, like he said, 99% of those officers, not only are they good officers, they want to do a good job. They're there to serve the public. You, know, you would be surprised at how far they will go to help people. But it's the one percenters, and I'm sorry, you, you say it doesn't seem like a lot, but you, know, you start picking 1% of any department, 
and that's enough to make the whole department have a bad, bad, bad name. Uh, again, I want to thank Jeff, uh, Holly, all of you for, you know, for bringing out and letting us, let hopefully it opened this podcast, open the eyes of somebody that said, you know, I really didn't think about it that way. I really thought this, this other way. So thank you again. Who wants to go first, Ashley or Jeff? I'll let Jeff go because he doesn't like being last. <laughs> uh, so... I've I've had the honor of having a long recorded interview with AJ Autry James, and that went really well. I've also had the uh, experience of having a long unrecorded interview with Hugh Crooks. Uh, uh, Sean, it's the first time I've met you, but I and, and this is for all of you. This is such a great uh, panel of of minds here and not just experience or perspective but i appreciate the minds and the thoughtfulness that went into all of your answers and i do hope that uh, this coming from the american legion will start a conversation in the american legion because we are out there serving our community state and nation so we are a visible visible force in our communities and and perhaps we can contribute uh, legion-wide in having um, a multifaceted conversation that actually goes towards solvency and less towards just raw, open emotion. Yep. Was, the, yes, uh, all, all for solvency, because at the end of the day, you know, we can be, we can be pro-blue, pro-blue, like, or pro-officer, pro-police officer, and we can also be pro-protesting because we know that if we can do that within within our right and left limits, we can make change. And as a community as a whole, just from all the perspectives that have been shared today, you know, we have to take some personal responsibility to create the world that we want to live in. And you know, if that means having uncomfortable conversations, so be it. If that means having taking that time to educate and to inform and to um, like I said, just be uncomfortable. And I think these conversations are going to open the, the doors for, uh, as, as Jeff said, our, our local, state, and national level of legionnaires to really, you know, to make a difference and to challenge all those that aren't in, within the military community to make a difference and know that we, we may be, the, you know, the largest VSO, but we're not silent on these matters. And we do care. And, you know, we do understand and rationalize and, you know, we fully support those and their their feelings and they're justifiable. I understand it, but I think that we we're on the right track here. Progress. Yeah. Well, on behalf of all of us, I want to thank everyone who's uh, who's who stood by and listened to all these. Uh, you probably at times were listening to us and shouting things out in your living room. Uh, don't <laughs> shout them out in your living room. Shout them out into our comment section. Let us know what you feel. You know, if you disagree with us, tell us you disagree with us. Just just let us know. Let us know what we can do to help you. Um, thank you, everyone, so much for listening. And on behalf of all of us, again, thank you for all you do. And uh, let's go out and uh, be the Legion. Bye, guys. Bye.